Hello everyone, welcome to the Oceanside Sanctuary online church service. We're really glad that you're joining us here today. And if you don't mind, just leave a comment in the comment section below, letting us know that you're joining. Also, maybe share this live stream, make a watch party. It's a great way for other people to join us and see what's happening here at the Oceanside Sanctuary. Also, we're gonna be taking communion in just a little bit. So take a second, grab some communion elements. They don't have to be the traditional grape juice and wafer. It can be coffee and a bagel. But in just a little bit, we're gonna be taking communion together. And now is a great time to make sure that you have those elements available. Also, if you're someone that's new, you've just found out about the Oceanside Sanctuary, you've been watching our live stream, this is a great time for you to get connected with what's going on here. There's a whole lot of ways that you can be connected and we wanna get in touch with you about that. So after the live stream's over, just click the link in the comments that's gonna take you to a digital connect card. Fill out that connect card and we wanna stay in touch with you and provide ways for you to connect with us here at Oceanside Sanctuary. Now we're gonna enter into a time of worship. And every time that we enter into worship here, we always recite the Lord's Prayer together. Reciting the Lord's Prayer just helps us see what the kingdom of God looks like in our everyday life. And so as we prepare to recite the prayer together, I just wanna to invite you to take a deep breath, to relax right where you are, and to think about the gospel made a reality in our life. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen. Well, if you would turn with me again, like I said, to uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to read starting in verse 3. We're going to read this whole passage together, and then we're going to talk a little bit about what uh, is resonating with me, and I want to invite you to consider what is resonating with you as well. So starting in verse 3, Peter says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he's given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Then he goes on in verse 6, In this you rejoice, even if now for a little while you have had to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, that though perishable is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Verse 8. Although you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy. For you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is a beginning of a letter that Peter writes to Christians who are scattered throughout 
uh, the ancient Near East, scattered throughout Asia Minor. And so the Apostle Peter is sending out a letter to them. And like a lot of Christians in the ancient Near East in the first century, they're struggling with persecution and trials of all kinds uh, because of their faith, because they are unusual Jews living in the ancient Near East. And in many cases, non-Jews who have converted to this brand new expression of faith that is an outcropping of Judaism. And so these are folks who would have been persecuted not only by their fellow Jews if they were Jews to begin with, because they seem to be following this Jesus character who was this rabbi who was killed uh, on the cross and, and crucified very publicly. So if they were Jewish believers, they would have been likely really uh, subject to a lot of persecution and hatred from their own community. And if they weren't Jews, then they would have been seen as essentially Gentiles who converted to Judaism because people wouldn't have understood what was going on there. And so you had in this, uh, in this time, uh, in the early, early part of the church, a group of scattered believers who were really struggling, especially because of their faith. If you look back at this passage, one of the things that really stands out at me, what really strikes me at the beginning, is Peter describes this faith as a living hope. If you look again at verse 3, Peter says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who by his great mercy has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrected Jesus Christ. So Peter calls the faith that the early Christians have a kind of living hope. It's not an ordinary hope. It's, it's not like a sort of form of wishful thinking. Instead, there's something Peter says that is alive inside of those who have placed their hope in Christ. And Peter is speaking to that living, vibrant hope that exists inside of these believers. And he takes as proof of that something that I find really interesting. If you look back at the passage again, Peter sees evidence for what he calls this living hope that's grounded and rooted in the resurrection. He takes as his evidence for that their ability to love a person that they've never seen. Look at verse 8. It says this, Although you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy. I love that passage. I love how Peter points out that one of the things that is an evidence that they have a living hope inside of them is that they're able to believe and trust and even love this person, Jesus Christ, that they've never seen before. Now, that's part of my story, and it might be part of your story too, that at some point you were introduced to the idea of Jesus, that you were introduced to the idea of Christianity that you're introduced to the idea of faith in this person that we call Jesus Christ. Now, maybe that happened for you when you were a young child, like it did for me. You first heard a very simple version of the gospel, or maybe for you, it happened when you were much older, but there was a point at which somebody offered you this hope, this new idea, this, this good news, this gospel, and as you begin to think about it and turn it over in your mind, and it began to sort of seep into you at some point, that hearing of the gospel turned into a new kind of hope. And at some point, that new kind of hope in that gospel turned into a love for this person that you've never met before. And that whole process really strikes me as a very human process, this process of falling in love with somebody as you get to know who they are more intimately and more deeply. It makes me think this whole uh, passage in First Peter chapter 1 actually 
Reminds me of the story of Doubting Thomas. Maybe it reminds you of that too. Uh, the story of Doubting Thomas, of course, comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 20. You probably remember it. This is after Jesus is resurrected, and he goes and he appears to a group of disciples who are up in the upper room, and he meets with them, and he sees them, and uh, you know they interact with him, and they talk to him, and he eats with them, the whole thing. And of course, all the disciples, because they see Jesus, they're, they're blown away, and of course, they believe that he's resurrected, and everybody's excited and happy because they think that this means that Jesus is finally going to fulfill this sort of political insurrection that they'd been hoping for. And of course, Jesus leaves, and it turns out that there's one person among the disciples who wasn't there at that time, and that was Thomas. And so John chapter 20 tells us that Thomas later, when the disciples said to him, our Lord, our master, our rabbi is alive, Thomas said to them, I'll believe it when I see it. Of course, he says it a little differently. He says, I'll believe it when I can put my fingers in the holes in his hands and I can put my side in that wound that was caused by the spear. That's when I'll believe that he's actually alive. Now, of course, the great part of this story is, it says a week later, the disciples are gathered again in the upper room. Only this time, Thomas is with them and Jesus appears to them. This, of course, blows Thomas away. And Jesus, knowing what Thomas had said, says, Thomas, come on over here. Put your fingers in the holes in my hands. Put your hand in my side and see that it's true. So Thomas does that. And of course, he proclaims that he believes in Christ and he's overwhelmed by what has happened. And Jesus says something really interesting to Thomas. He says, blessed are those who believe and do not see. Now, I love this story about uh, doubting Thomas, probably because I'm a bit of a doubter myself. I'm a bit of a skeptic at heart. I tend to be the kind of person who says, I'll believe it when I see it. I wanna see the evidence. I wanna read the study that purports that something is true. I, I, I wanna pick apart everything about it until I'm finally convinced. And so, of course, I sympathize with Thomas, and I feel bad that Thomas is often set up in churches and in church teaching as sort of the, the bad guy, or at least the fool who wasn't willing to have a real kind of faith. And we forget, of course, that all of the disciples had the opportunity to see Jesus in the flesh, not just Thomas. And so I don't think that Jesus says to Thomas, oh good, you see me and now you believe, blessed are those who will believe without seeing. I don't think he says that to Thomas to shame him. I don't think he says that to Thomas to belittle Thomas's faith. Rather, I think what Jesus is saying to Thomas is, there will come a time in your spiritual journey when you will have to learn to believe in what you don't see. And I think that actually is true of all of us. That at some point in our lives, of course, we believe in the things that we can touch, that we can feel, that we can taste, the things that are really concrete. But there comes a time in every person's life when they have to take a leap of faith and believe in something they can't see. They have to believe in something that they can't prove. They have to believe in something that they can't categorically affirm because of data or evidence. Anybody who has fallen in love knows what I'm talking about. Because falling in love is not the experience of something being proven to you by evidence. It's the experience of being transformed by something that you really can't touch or see. It's the fact that somebody loves you and you love them in return. One of my heroes uh, is the psychologist Eric Erickson, who wrote a lot about this reality that we're talking about now. 
Erickson, of course, is famous for coining the phrase a crisis uh, in various parts of our lives, right? So when we experience an identity crisis, we are going through something that Eric Erickson uh, really identified very insightfully as something we all have to experience on our way to becoming more mature. Uh, Erickson is talking about that transition that typically happens in young adulthood when people leave adolescence or a kind of late childhood behind and enter into what it means for them to be genuinely more mature adults. And here's what he says. He says, thus the young adult emerging from the search for and the insistence on identity is eager and willing to fuse his identity with that of others. He's ready for intimacy. That is the capacity to commit himself to concrete affiliations and partnerships and to develop the ethical strength to abide by such commitments, even though they may call for significant sacrifices and compromises. I just love how he describes that. Erickson is saying that when a young adult leaves behind their adolescence, that they must be ready to enter into intimacy with other people and that intimacy is characterized by having the strength to have ethical commitments to other people even though that might require sacrifice on the part of the person doing that loving. I think that Peter is actually describing the exact same thing in 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter is saying that those followers of Christ that he is writing to, they have demonstrated exactly that kind of spiritual growth and maturity because they've demonstrated the ability to love somebody that they can't even see. And Peter even identifies what Erickson identifies as the key to this. Going back to the beginning in verse 3, I just want to remind you, 1 Peter writes this. He says, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he's given us a new birth into a living hope, right? A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, Peter is saying that our ability to love Christ, our ability to love beyond ourselves, our ability to turn our gaze away from our own desires, our own needs, our own wants, our own comfort, our ability to do that is dependent on our ability to identify with the death and the resurrection of Christ. And that is exactly what Erickson said too. Eric Erickson said that the key to learning how to be somebody who can be intimate with another person is that you have to first resolve your identity crisis. You have to find your own identity first before you can love another person genuinely and effectively. As Christians, of course, we know that what that means is that we need to find our identity in the person and the work of Christ before we can love like Christ did. So our ability then to love Christ, our ability to love this person who demonstrates a kind of life, a quality of life, an existence that is pointed towards the good of others and the good of our world, our ability to do that is dependent on our ability to identify with the death and resurrection of Jesus. And once we've done that, once we have identified with the death and resurrection of Jesus, then we find that we have the ability to love each other. We have the ability to love each other not in ways that are selfish, not in ways that just gratify our needs, not in ways that sort of strengthen our own weak egos, but love each other in the same way that Christ loves us. 
specifically in ways that are sacrificial, in ways that cost us something, but it's worth the cost because that love, that ability to love like Christ, Peter says, is the outcome of our faith. This is why we do what we do as Christians. This is why we follow Christ. It's not so that we can punch our ticket to heaven. It's not so that we can make a safe bet on what happens to us for eternity. Instead, by getting to know who Christ is and falling in love with Christ and his teachings and his works, we find that we want to be like him because he is good and right and true and loving. And so in becoming more like him, we show that we are receiving the outcome of our faith even now, even before the end of the age, whatever that might end up looking like. Today, I want to invite you, as you continue to press in during these trying and difficult times, I want to invite you to ask yourself what it might mean for you to fall in love with Christ if you haven't already. How can you get to know who Christ is? How can you dig into his teachings in the Gospels? How can you learn more about who he is so that you can decide, just like Thomas, whether or not you really do believe in him? Today, we're going to take a little communion together like we always do. But before we do that, I want to invite you just to spend a little bit more time worshiping. We're going to ask Katie and Luke uh, to play another song for us. And while they do, I want to invite you to just prayerfully ask Christ to teach you how you can identify yourself more closely with him. Would you pray with me before we jump back into a time of worship? Father, we thank you for this time. We ask God that you would uh, enlarge our hearts, that we would gain a vision for who you are, uh, that our hearts would be big enough to encompass uh, what you've called us to be in this world, who you've called us to love in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces. And we ask God that as you would teach us to love more, that you would give us uh, the patience and the perseverance to endure this time of difficulty and trial because you have given us a supernatural love for you and from you and through you to extend to others. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.